Well, I didn't give you a break uh, message or a question this morning, so hopefully you figured out something to talk about. <laughs> but before you get out of here, make sure that you uh, find somebody you haven't had a chance to speak to today and speak to them for just a minute. We want to encourage that always, uh, particularly if we have first time uh, people coming through. We always want to make sure you are welcome uh, here. I'm not going to point you out because that would be awkward, so <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But uh, if you're around this after, right after experience, so make sure you want to catch somebody uh, that you haven't seen in a while or maybe seen for the first time, let them know they're loved and appreciated because Jesus loves us and so we want to love everybody else, right? Which is what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning in our message. So I'm like, good enough. We're starting a new series that's going to run for a few weeks here, uh, going through Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 49. So if you're one of those studious people who need to know where we're at and where we're going and want to read ahead and do all that crazy stuff that procrastinators like me never do, feel free. We're going to be in these verses 12 through 49 for the next couple of, well, three or four weeks now. And so feel free to read ahead. This morning, we're going to be in verses 12 through 16. Uh, but the series we're entering into is entitled Good Enough. And the reason it's entitled Good Enough is uh, we want to answer the question, who's good enough to follow Jesus? That's what we're going to answer, ask this morning and answer, hopefully. And we're also going to look at what does, what does the Bible say about what this thing is we call church and who's involved and who can be and who can't be? We're going to look at some particular qualities of those who are good enough to get into heaven, because I think that's a, always a pertinent question of like, who can, who can really qualify to get there? And then look at what Jesus calls good, quote unquote, and how we can practically live that out. So here in week one, we're going to jump right into verses 12 through 16 of Luke chapter 6 to see who is good enough to follow Jesus. Now, I want to lead with this because it's an incredibly important question that I think we have to ask and answer over and over and over again, especially in this context we live in, because we are surrounded in this community and our other communities that we all are engaged in, whether it be Pownall or Bennington or, or New York area, wherever we're at. This is the same situation played out over and over and over again, I guarantee it. We're surrounded by neighbors, friends, family who don't feel like they're good enough to be here on a Sunday morning. I can guarantee it. I can guarantee that you have heard someone say, if I come to church on a Sunday morning and walk through those doors, the roof will fall in, right? <laughs> You've heard that or something close to it, right? You may have even have said that at one point, right? You, know, you probably have. But we have to clarify that. We got to spell it out every week. I try to, that we're on a mission, right? We're on a rescue mission as Jesus was to see the hurting healed, to see the lost found, to engage with those who aren't considered good enough by the world to say you are good enough, even here, especially here. And so we want to make sure we say that over and over and over again. We want to make sure we make this a place where everybody who is exploring faith, whether you're in it for, have been a follower of Jesus for 30, 40, 50 years, or somebody who just even maybe heard the name. But if you're on that track, if you're thinking about who he is and what it's like to follow him, you're welcome here to explore that. We want to make sure we continually open that door wider and wider so that we make sure we include everybody to point them to the way, the truth, and the life. So as many times as we say that, and again, I try to make sure we say that every week practically, it never hurts to say it again, and it really never hurts to look at the life of Jesus and to affirm that we got our facts straight. You can say something over and over and over again, right? But does that make it true? No, not necessarily, right? It doesn't. But for us and people who follow, gather around Jesus and what uh, his life and his ministry and his words were, we have to go to the Bible to find our answer and to reaffirm what we believe to make sure we got it straight. We don't ever want to deviate from the, 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 what we have here, our source. And so we go back to that this morning as we look at Luke 6, 12 through 16. And what we find here as we're getting ready to get into this passage is that uh, at this point in Jesus's life, to give you a little bit of context, he spent about a year and a half going through and healing the sick. He's, he's, he's uh, making the lame walk again, opening blind eyes. He's, he's preaching and teaching about uh, the kingdom of God and about all these things. And at this point in his ministry, about a year and a half in, he's gathered a lot of people. All right, there's a lot of people following Jesus around wherever he goes, right? He, he would be pretty famous today, but he was really famous back then. And everybody wanted to hear what Jesus was going to say. And so they would follow him from town to town, from place to place. And every time he goes somewhere new, there'd be more people who would come in here. And so what we have here in Luke 6 is what's called the Sermon on the Plain. It's where Jesus comes out and he's going to tell everybody, hey, here's what following me looks like. Here's what the kingdom of God looks like. Here's what serving others and serving me looks like. And so before he does that, he's got an important thing to do. He's got this big group following him. And he knows, because he's Jesus and we're human, he knows he's got about a year and a half left on his life. And he's got to find 12, just 12, 
to pour into, to invest his life into all he has so that whenever he uh, is crucified and whenever he is resurrected and whenever he's gone, these 12 will carry on what he started. And so he's got a year and a half to train them. But before he can even train them, he's got to choose them. He's got to choose them for they to, they're going to reach out and they're going to be his hands and feet after he is gone. So we look here in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13 to begin with as we see what the Word says. It says here, In these days, meaning what I just described to you, he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. All right, so a couple of quick things here. Notice that he spent the entire night in prayer. Now, this isn't just hyperbole. This, was, this is written, recorded uh, history fact here. So he spent the entire night in prayer. So if he went up to the mountain before dark, and uh, that was probably around 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and then he came down after dawn, that'd be around 6 in the morning. So he spent 10 hours praying, 10 hours straight of engaging with God about this decision that he's about to make about these 12 men. He wasn't coming at this half-caught. He wasn't going up there and saying, well, Lord, I hope you give me 12 good ones, and I'll see you tomorrow morning. We'll figure this out. He was engaged totally. Everything in him was like, oh, this better be right, and these men better be ready. Lord, help them to be. So he was pleading with them, pleading with God, making sure that he was in the right place and that the people he would be choosing would be ready. He was persevering all that time with the immense weight of duty that was sitting on him, saying, oh, man, this is going to be super important to get this straight. Because he would choose 12 that wouldn't only affect his life for the next year and a half, it wouldn't only affect their lives for the next year and a half, but forever. And it really, it would change the whole uh, concept of history, really. It would just flip it on its head. These 12 men would go on to do so many crazy, miraculous things that it would realign the whole of human history. After Jesus' death and resurrection, if these 12 didn't continue doing what he started, we wouldn't be here right now. But they did. And so he's got to get this right. So if you're the one making this decision, there's no pressure here, right? Oh, we, can, we can just get 12 guys. We'll figure it out. We'll walk through this, and we'll, we'll sort it out as we go along. There's, but there's immense amount of pressure here on Jesus. So when day comes, after 10 hours of pressing in to God and saying, man, I've really got to get this straight, he comes down the mountain, and he says, okay, I've got to get 12. Now, we're going to focus on who Jesus chose in a minute, and it's going to be a pretty fun exercise, I think, about who he, got, who he uh, picked. But can you imagine being part of that crowd that morning? Just, just put, your, put yourself in their position for a sec, right? Imagine we're all sitting around, you know, and there's hundreds more around us. This isn't just a short crowd. This is a big crowd, all right? So imagine we're all sitting out on this field. Jesus is coming down from the mountain, and we know something big is about to happen, right? We know something's going to change in our lives this morning, and he's going to choose 12, right? Now, when I was thinking through this, I was thinking about when I was growing up and I would be out on the playground at school, all right? You ever done this? You ever out on the playground at school during recess or during a PE session or whatever, and you all gather around and the teacher says, okay, Johnny and, and Jane, you're going to pick two teams, right? And your teams are going to compete against each other. And, and you're all standing around and Johnny and Jane's got to pick teams and they're going to pick everybody and say you're playing kickball or whatever, right? So they're going to pick the biggest, they're going to pick the fastest, they're going to pick the one with the, the biggest leg that's going to kick that ball a mile uh, away, right? They're going to choose all those people, and you might, maybe, wind up being picked last, right? If you're not very athletic, if you're not, the, uh, if you're not tall, you're not big, you're not strong, you might be sitting out there waiting to be picked at the end of the line. Can you imagine that? I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that experience Anybody here been, you can, you can be honest with me. Anybody here been picked last? Walt's been picked last. Yeah, all right. It's okay. You can be picked last. All right. So, yeah. So I can imagine as, as unimportant, although it feels super important at the time, as unimportant as being picked last in a kickball game at school is, imagine the disciples who were all gathered around that morning saying, well, if, what if Jesus doesn't pick me? You know, what then? All right. So, I want us to continue to lean into that and think about how that feels because I think it makes being chosen feel even more important. Jesus is going to choose what was going to be called the, the apostles. Essentially, they're going to be his official representatives to the world. And he didn't do this the way we would do it today, right? He didn't go fill out a job application or put out an application on LinkedIn and say, oh, please apply here. We, we want the best and the brightest, right? He didn't go out and, and ask for volunteers even, like we sometimes do at church. He didn't say, hey, anybody who wants to come help, please, please help me. 
Mm-mm. He said, out of the, the many, I will choose a few. I will choose a few. I can imagine that morning there were a lot of people who were disappointed that they didn't get chosen, but there were a few fortunate 12 that did. They got picked for Team Jesus that day. And, and I want you to think about this as we go through these 12. But I want you to imagine Jesus' weight of responsibilities. He's choosing these and, and the men who are getting chosen, the immense challenges and responsibilities that they're going to face over the next 18 months. And, and imagine that if you're sitting in that, standing in that crowd this morning, if you're Jesus, you're thinking, oh, he's only going to pick the best. He's only going to pick the brightest. He's only going to pick those who are the, the, the smartest guys in the room, the ones who can, carry, who can walk the farthest with them, the ones who can do all the great things that he's going to be able to do. He's going to pick all those people, right? We're going to find out. Let's go down the list. Luke 6, 13 through 16, as we already kind of led with 13, but we'll, we'll read again. And when the day came, he called the disciples. He chose from them 12, whom he named apostles, meaning his official representatives. These are the big ones, right? Here he goes, 14. Simon, whom he called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. All right, so buckle up. We're going to walk through these one by one, very briefly, all right? But as we do, I want you to do something with me. I want you to think, and I want to encourage you to look at each one of these as we go through and describe them and find yourself. Find yourself. If you had to be one of the 12, which one would you be? And you can't just go off of names, right? You can't just say, oh, I like Simon, Peter. That sounds great. Let me be Simon, Peter. And you can't do that. I'm going to give you some descriptions about who they are and what they, a brief thing about what they did and, and why Jesus chose them. And I want you to put yourself in their shoes that morning, being chosen out of the, out of the many. And you're the few. Who's he picking? So let's start with Peter, right? Here we go. Man up, Peter. Peter and Andrew are kind of grouped together there, right? Peter and Andrew, his brother. So obviously they're related. Uh, they were sons of John. They were born in a town called Bethsaida. They were fishermen. They worked alongside another group called uh, another couple of guys, James and John, who were also brothers. We'll get to them in a minute. Uh, they were friends. They'd probably known each other for years and years and years and years. So what can we glean from them? Peter, as you see here, right? He said, Simon, whom Jesus named Peter. Uh, Peter was a nickname. All right, is we're going to find out there's a lot of nicknames in this crowd. If you've ever been in a group for any amount of time that really loved and appreciated each other, you're going to come out with a nickname, right? When I was in the Marine Corps, it only took like three months, and my nickname was Brother J. I was never, you know, Corporal Dominie. I was never any of those things. It was Brother J because I went to church and nobody else did, and so I was Brother J, right? So you're going to get a nickname when you're around people long enough. So Jesus, the first thing he does when he meets uh, Simon here, he says this, when Jesus first met him, he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, but he says, you shall be called Cephas, which is Peter translated, which means a stone. That's the first words that Jesus ever said. And from then on, Rock would be his nickname. Now that's a pretty cool nickname, right? If you've got to have a nickname, you might as well have Rock, right? I mean, you know, one of the biggest box office draws in history right now is The Rock, right? So it's a pretty strong name, right? So if I'm Peter, if I'm Simon, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm The Rock. That's what I'm talking about, you know? I'm, I'm going to be it. I'm going to be the man. I'm called first. I got my brother over here. He might be called in a minute, but I'm number one. I'm The Rock. I'm going to do this. But what you find is whenever Jesus continually refers to him, he says him, he calls him Simon almost all the time, <laughs> if you read through it. If his nickname's The Rock, if he's the man who's supposed to be, this thing's going to be founded on, why does, why does Jesus continually call him Simon? Well, you find that when you see the word him, Jesus referring to him as Simon, it's whenever Jesus is calling him out. He's saying, okay, you were going to be The Rock. I called you The Rock when I first met you, but you're acting like Simon right now, right? <laughs> Over and over and over again, he reminds them of who he was, but then he also affirms of who he is meant to be. So whenever he says, hey, Simon, he's rebuking him, he's correcting him, which is important. This, let me, don't miss this in church either. There's going to be a time where one, each one of us is going to have to say, hey, what, what's going on? Why are you doing that? Why are you being crazy? All right? Why are you going out and doing that stuff you know you're not supposed to do? And that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Because if I don't love you enough to correct you, I don't love you at all. And so Jesus was talking to Simon, and he said, I want you to be a rock, but right now you're being Simon, all right? So I'm going to correct you. But he gave him that nickname because he wanted him to change. Now, Simon was brash. Man, he would jump out at anything. He was wishy-washy. One minute he was on fire, the next minute he's falling back. He was loud-mouthed. He was always, 
always stepping up and saying things, even if it wasn't right. He would be the first person to say this, right? Now, it's going to be hard for you to identify with him because I know none of you here are brash. None of you here are loudmouth. None of you here are wishy-washy. I know nobody fits that description in here. So, all right. Maybe you do. Right, anyway, so, but here's Simon. He was undependable too. He would be doing, he would be all in and then all out. Man, that'd be frustrating. But here he was. He tended to make great promises he couldn't follow through with. He was one of those people who, who would appear to lunge in wholeheartedly. He's just ready to go into it. And then something happens and he bails out. Ooh, that, I, that can be a frustrating character trait. But I think we've, we can all appreciate who he was. When Jesus met him, he fit the description of what James would later on write to say he was double-minded, he was unstable. Jesus would change his name. He'd say, I want you to be the rock because he wanted to be, it to be a constant reminder of who he should be, not who he was. Now, over the three years that Jesus would be with Peter and Peter with Jesus, he would be changed from that common man, that fisherman, that, that rough-and-tumble guy who was always ready to jump in but never followed through. He would be changed from that guy that unsubmissive, impulsive person into a rock-like leader. But it took years. It took years to get it done. And when here, when Jesus chooses him, it's only been a year and a half, and he is far, 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 far from being the rock that Jesus calls him to be. So maybe you're Peter. Who's good enough to follow Jesus? Somebody who's loudmouth, somebody who's brash, somebody who doesn't follow through, somebody who's not who they're ready to be yet. But that's who Jesus chose. Number two, the brother of Peter is Andrew, right? Peter and Andrew, his brother. If you have any brothers or sisters, you might know what it's like to play second fiddle. And here's Andrew playing second fiddle, all right? You know, the older brother who's brash and loudmouth always gets the intention. Andrew was the exact opposite. Andrew was quiet. He was very much in the background. You can count on, your, on two hands how many times his name is mentioned over all the Gospels. You can read through it and you only find him a handful of times. Now, Usually, when you have brothers like that, you have one brother, like Peter, who's overshadowing the younger brother, right? That happens in a lot of families. And it's common when that happens, you find somebody who resents that older brother or sister, right? You ever have that growing up? You have that sibling rivalry where one of you is older and you're super stickler for the rules or whatever, but then you have the younger brother who's always sitting in the shadows, and, and eventually that younger brother is like, man, why don't you go find something to do and leave me alone? I'm tired of being told what to do, right? Let me get, get out of here. And they have that resentment that builds up. So Andrew was that one who was, had the potential to resent his older brother. But we don't read anywhere, oddly enough, in the word that there's any evidence that he had anything against Peter. Anything at all. As a matter of fact, it was Andrew who brought Peter to Christ in the first place. So if, if Andrew had anything against Peter, it wasn't evident that we have in the Scripture. He was actually eager to say, hey, Jesus, I'm, I just met you. Let me go find my brother. He'll love you. You'll love him. It'll be great. And so even though he knew that Peter would probably be closer to Jesus because Peter was that engaging, all-out personality, Andrew said, I want you to meet him anyway. I want you to meet him anyway. Andrew knew he was going to play second fiddle, but he brought him along anyway. Now, Andrew's name means manly, all right? So I don't want you to think that Andrew was this diminutive guy who was just kind of sitting in the back going, oh, please don't. He wasn't that. He was this manly guy. He was a fisherman, right? He was out there. He was fishing every day, like the song just said with Luke Bryan. He was doing all these things. He loved to be out. He was a manly man, all right? He was this manly man. But it wasn't all about the machismo. It wasn't all about the physical strength. That he had other characteristics of manliness. He was bold. He was decisive. He was deliberate in all those things. When he mentioned in the Bible, when you see him mentioned, he's always eagerly bringing somebody to meet Jesus. He's always engaged. But he knew he'd live his whole life in the shadow of Peter, but he accepted that role anyway. Apparently, he has no problem being in the background, not getting any credit. And this very thing is what makes him so useful to Jesus in the 12. So Jesus said, Andrew, brother of Peter, come on over. You might not ever get the accolades. You might not ever be number one, but you're going to be a great number two. And that's not a bad place to be. So he brings Andrew along. Third, he brings in James. He said, there's James and there's John, right? James and John here, they're brothers. James was the older brother. Again, here we have some sibling stuff, right? This is why his name's put first. And between, between these two sets of brothers, with Peter, uh, between James and John here, you've got um, this family, James and John, are much more affluent. They're a much more prominent family. Their dad owned a fishing business. So it wasn't just a local two guys out there hanging out in a boat. 
This was people who had several boats, right? This is people who knew the fishing business and had a lot of money, uh, but they weren't just some rich kids that never engaged, right? This wasn't the family business and they didn't do it. They're out there working too. They were, they were people of, of affluence, but they were ready to put in the work to get it done, all right? Uh, so in Scripture, you see James listed before his younger brother John, and he doesn't get mentioned, though, as much, even though he's older. John's much more on the front lines during the three years he's with Jesus. But even though you don't get mentioned a whole lot, they get a nickname, too, because, again, Jesus loved his nickname. So they're nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. And it's some great nicknames, right? I mean, you got The Rock. You got Andrew, he's playing second fiddle, that's all right. Then you got the Sons of Thunder. You got James and John. It's like an ACDC. I can imagine they come out on there, right? Thunder. Oh, I'm the only ACDC fan here? Okay, all right. So, all right, Sons of Thunder, they're coming out and they're, boom, they're ready. From what little we know about James, he was a man of intense fervor, intense passion. He was all about anything. He was all in. You know, this guy who was just, who would sell out for whatever. And they, they might be all out for a big diet. They might be all out for, for a workout plan. They might be all out, but they're all out for something, right? They're just all in. They're super intense people who are either in or out. And James was in. He was all about it. Super intense. Matter of fact, you hear one instance when you read through the Bible, his so, he was so zealous. He was so passionate for God that uh, while Andrew was sitting here bringing people to Jesus, Andrew's like, oh, come and meet Jesus. He's great. And then you have uh, uh, James and John over here, and they wanted to call down fire on a whole village of people and just burn them up. They said, these people are worthless. Just boom, burn them up. It doesn't matter anymore, right? So you have Andrew who's over, oh, and then James and John, oh, it, was, it was crazy dynamic. But here you have Peter, Andrew, and James and John. And we'll, get, we'll get to John in just a sec. All very different people. Fishermen, rugged, manly, yeah, very different. All flawed, very flawed, all called. John, James and John, right? Second brother, second of the sons of thunder. All right, so almost everything we observed about the personality and character of James is also true of John. All right, he's the younger brother of the sons of thunder, but he's still all in too. All right, they were inseparable. Every time you see James, you see John. You ever had that family? There was all, when you had one, you got the other. They're never not around each other, right? So James and John are always tied up together. Similar, similar temperaments, they were inseparable. Uh, they were both eager to call down fire. They were ready to do it. Uh, John's also also in the thick of the debate, so who is the greatest? You know, he had a couple of times where that got brought up. Like, oh, Jesus, whenever you get to your kingdom, we want to be right there with you. We're, number, we're, we're the sons of thunder. We're ready to push forward. We're ready to sit on your right and to your left. They're all about being number one. And ironically, despite his temperament, John here is that same John that wrote the Gospel John and then wrote all the other Johns you'll see in the Bible, right? And despite his temperament, he's best remembered for being an apostle that constantly wrote about the love of God. How do you, how do you reconcile that? The guy was ready to call down fire on a village, the guy that was, was just so passionate and so on fire, but he's always talking about the love of God. But I think what we miss there sometimes is the love he was describing wasn't just this fluffy, sentimental kind of love. It's saying, oh, I love Jesus. You know, as a matter of fact, if you look through some of the, uh, the pictures in the medieval times whenever they wrote these, these awesome portraits of, of the Last Supper, right? John's the one that lays on Jesus' chest because in, you read through it in, in the Gospels where John is doing that. He lays on Jesus' breast. And it's like, oh, you know, that seems you know, pretty effeminate, and John's just kind of hanging out. Oh, you know, poor John this apostle of love, and he's just, that was not John at all. He cared so much. He was so much on fire for the love of God that he was ready to, uh, this love he continued to, continued to describe as just this tough, enduring love that was much like himself. It was very black and white with John. He was, you were in or you were out. It was, he was all in. He was this rugged, hard-edged fisherman that knew that he wasn't going to do things halfway. He was going to push in with all that he had to be with Jesus. It would take him a lifetime to be transformed from this self-centered fanatic into a man of balance. A lifetime to go from a, a son of thunder to an apostle of love. But that morning, he wasn't an apostle of love when Jesus chose him, but Jesus chose him anyway. Jesus knew he was all in and, and on fire and ready to call down thunder. He was ready to do all these things, and Jesus said, you're coming with me. You're coming with me. Philip, right, here we go, where are we at? James and John and Philip, kind of thrown in the middle there, right? Now, Philip is a Greek name meaning lover of horses. Anybody, any horse lovers around here? Yeah, two of them, right? Yeah, Zana is a horse lover, right? So there's some horse lovers around here, all right? 
there's there's good biblical evidence that Philip, Nathaniel, who's also Bartholomew, you'll see his name mixed up sometimes because it's two different translations, uh, and Thomas were all fishermen from Galilee. Again, lots of fishermen in this crowd. Anybody, anybody here like to fish? I think we got some people like to fish around this town. Yes, thank you. Well, Jesus chose a lot of fishermen, right? A lot of fishermen. So Philip, Nathaniel, and Thomas, they were fisher people. They liked to go out and fish. And uh, it seems Philip, though, was a pretty classic process person. Now, maybe you're this person, too. I'm, I have some, some traits of Philip in me. He was a facts and figures guy. He was a, a by-the-book guy. He was very practical-minded. He was, wasn't very visionary. He was very just, what do, what, could, what do I see, and how can we put it into our neat little boxes, and how can we get this moving forward the way, you know, the way it should be done? He was the kind that, if you're ever in a meeting with people, he was always the guy that said, uh, that sounds good, but I don't think we can foot the bill for that, <laughs> or I don't think we can do that. Just, we don't have enough people. We don't have enough manpower. We don't have enough something. It's not going to happen, all right? Not because he didn't want it to happen, just because he couldn't see it. It had to be black and white, practical, something he could grab onto. He was a man of faith, but he was often a man of a weak faith. And he was used, after this point, as, a, as an administrator, right? He was the bean counter. It's likely that he was charged with, with arranging meals and logistics. And what you find that one day, one, one really signifies his life and his ministry. One day, whenever there's this big crowd, like fifteen to 20,000 people were come hanging out, and they were ready to hear Jesus speak, and it was getting late, and everybody's like, oh, man, we need to send these people home. They're getting hungry, all right? And, and Jesus says, how are we going to, we need to feed these people. What are we going to do? And Philip says, the he does a quick he does a quick head count he says oh man we we got this money in the pot but there's no way we could feed all these people it just isn't gonna happen Jesus you might as well send them back you might as well send them back he wasn't excited as Jesus and the other other disciples were he was just concerned uh, that they wouldn't be able to feed these people instead of thinking wow what an opportunity to reach so many look at all these people it's gonna be awesome it's gonna be great Jesus is gonna be able to talk to them and how it's gonna really impact their lives. All pessimistic Philip could see was that it's impossible. We gotta, we gotta get these people out of here. We gotta get them out. There's no way we can feed all these people. What he should have said is, Lord, if you wanna feed them, feed them. I'll just stand back here and watch how you do it. But Philip was the bean counter. He couldn't see that. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're the facts and figures person this morning who can't see past right, right in front of you. Jesus chose Philip that morning, Jesus chose Bartholomew. All right, here we go. Bartholomew or Nathaniel. You'll see that either way. It came from Cana and Galilee. We don't know a whole lot about him, so don't expect too much from me on this. We know he wasn't educated formally. He didn't go to school or get any kind of formal education, but he did know a lot about Scripture. But when the one major fact we do know about him was he was prejudiced as all get out. All right? Now, whenever Jesus first met him, or before even Jesus met him, whenever uh, he got introduced to Jesus, he said, oh, there is no way anything good can come out of Nazareth. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, but if you missed it, Cana is this little off-the-beaten-path kind of town, kind of like, uh, uh, let, me, let me just put it in modern context, um, like, you know, uh, what's the town you came from, Walt? Stanford. Stanford. All right, kind of like Stanford, not, kind of not on the beaten path necessarily, right? But they were still considered socially better than people in Palinal, right? So for in our context here, Cana was, was better off than Palinal was, right? Uh, or Cana was better off than Nazareth was. So whenever Jesus was introduced to him, he said, oh, there's no way anything good is coming from Nazareth because he grew up his whole life thinking that those people weren't worth anything. Now, I know there are none of you who ever thought that anybody was worth less than you in this life, right? No, of course not. None of you have never done that. I've never done that. You've never saw somebody and say, oh, they're just as equal as I am. No, you, we don't all do that. There are times when we look down on people, maybe even in our own town. Oh, they're, they're not on the mountain. They're down in the valley. Oh, oh they're, they're down in the valley, but they're, they're, they're down in the trailer park. Oh, they're down in the trailer park, but they're in the worst part of the trailer park, right? We segregate it on and on and on and on and on, right? The other side of the tracks, right? Yeah, Absolutely. I grew up in the South, living on the other side of the tracks, usually meant black and white. Usually the blacks live on one side of town, the whites lived on the other. That was the other side of the tracks. But there's other side of the tracks all over the place. We all have within us this ability to be prejudiced. And, and so Bartholomew was a prejudiced dude. <laughs> he, did, he didn't want anything to do with Nazareth, but he was ready to receive Jesus. He said, I'm ready for the Messiah. And eventually, when he, wherever he first met Jesus, he said, all right, I'll get over the fact you're from Nazareth because you're the real deal. You're the real deal. So with Jesus, 
Jesus can overcome even the seemingly impossible. If you know anybody in this life that's prejudiced and you're thinking, there's no way this dude or woman is ever going to come to know Jesus. There's no way he can't get or she can't get past themselves and their prejudices in their lives. Bartholomew got over it pretty quick because he met Jesus. He can take a flawed person who's been blinded by the prejudice of this world and he can change that person into someone used to transform the world of his prejudice. He can It's happened over and over and over again. And so Jesus chose this uneducated man of prejudice to be one of the 12. Matthew, in all likelihood, none of the 12 were as notorious of a sinner than Matthew. He was a tax collector when Jesus called him, all right? And not just, I know we hate the IRS, or some of us do, and some of us can't stand that we had to pay taxes, and yeah, I get all that. This is a whole other level of IRS hate, all right? This is, this is a whole new ball of wax. So Matthew tax collected for the Romans, right, from his fellow Jews. And so the Israelites, the Galileans, all the, all the peoples who he was related to in his hometown, in the town he was collecting taxes from, hated the Romans because the Romans were occupying their, their land, right? They were enforcing rules. They were making the Jews carry bags. They were doing everything they wanted to do. They were in charge, and the Jews weren't. And so here is Matthew working for the enemy, collecting taxes, which is already a bad deal because nobody wants to pay taxes, right, uh, for the enemy, essentially. Tax collectors were despised beyond despised. They were the worst of the possible worst. They would never be allowed in any synagogue, uh, which is a church in Jewish context. They would never be allowed in any, any temple gathering. They were outcasts, vilified, pushed to the edges of society. Even the Romans didn't really care for him a whole bunch. They were just kind of that, that middleman that nobody likes. He was this traitor, this social pariah, the rankest of the rank. It was all bad for Matthew. And his only friends, guess what? Who were his only friends? If he's riffraff and he can't be anywhere around anybody else that's considered good enough, who's his friends? All the other people who are, who are considered the lowest of the low and the worst of the worst and the, the petty criminals, the hoodlums, the prostitutes, all these people are who Matthew hung out with day after day after day. Matter of fact, when he met Jesus and Jesus said, come on, Matthew, follow me, who's called Levi too. If you want to, come, on, come on, Levi, let's, let's, let's see what this is about. Come follow me and see what this is going on here. And Matthew took him to his house. He threw him a party, and who did he invite? All his friends, the prostitutes, the criminals, the hoodlums, the other tax collectors, all the people that everybody would have said, whoa, Jesus, and they did. They said, whoa, Jesus, what in the world are you going to his house for? Do you know who those people are? Do you know what they do? Do you know they have no fear of God? They might as well just be scum. What are you sitting and breaking bread with them for? And Jesus said, I come to seek and save the lost. Those who are sick need the physician, not those who think they're good enough. Matthew was ready. He was ready. He was ready to follow Jesus. He knew that he wasn't the best. He knew he wasn't the brightest. He knew that he wasn't in any normal circumstance would ever get to get close to anybody, a great teacher like Jesus. But Jesus said, come on. And that morning, even a year and a half later, a year or so later, he said, you're even better than, than come on. You're, you're, let me invest time and money and effort into you. Let me take time to, to make something of you more than what you could even possibly imagine. So he brings Matthew along, a man that no religious person in Jesus' day would spit on if he were on fire. Jesus said, you're one of the 12 this morning. Thomas, usually nicknamed Doubting Thomas, all right? Everybody knows Doubting Thomas because of Doubting Thomas, right? But doubting is kind of too strong of a word, I think, for someone who followed Jesus nearly three years. But I think it is probably fair, however, to, to say that Thomas was a somewhat negative person, all right? He was a worrywart. All right, you read through scripture, you'll see that he wasn't the, the man who was always like, oh, yeah, absolutely, we can do this. He was a brooder, all right? He was the guy who was always like, well, I guess if you say so, Jesus, we're going to go ahead and do this, but I'm not super excited about it, right? He was anxious. He was angst-ridden. He, he was like Eeyore and Winnie the Pooh, right? He would follow Winnie along wherever he went, but he was not going to be super happy about it, right? Here's Thomas bringing up the rear. We see that, this pessimism, we see that as an example near the end of Jesus' ministry, and I encourage you to go find that. He was, uh, Jesus was set out to, to go to a town close to Jerusalem, where there was a pretty good chance that everybody was going to string him up and stone him and kill him. And everybody who followed Jesus was going to get killed too. 
All right, but Jesus was dead set. I'm going to this town, whether y'all like it or not. You can try to talk me out of it. We're going forward to this place. And so Jesus went, and he said, if you're coming, great. If you're not, whatever. And, they, and Thomas spoke up. All the other disciples were saying, well, even the sons of thunder who are ready to jump into anything, right? Even Andrew, who was, who was willing to follow, played the background. Even Peter, who was the, the rock, quote unquote, right? They were all like, oh, I don't know, Jesus. I just don't want to die today, right? I just don't think it's a good idea. Here's Thomas, the pessimist, the one who should be saying, oh, Here's Thomas. He's the first person that spoke up that day. And these are the first words that are recorded of him in the Bible, just so you know, to put this in context, right? Then Thomas, who's called the twin, because he had a twin, we don't meet them, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, which sounds great, let us also go, good job, Thomas, that we may die with him. (laughs) Well, not so good, Thomas, but it's pessimism, right? But at least it's heroic pessimism. Right? At least there's something in this. Hey, Thomas might say, hey, we're going to die today, boys, but let's go together and die. Right? Let's do it. Maybe you're Thomas this morning. Maybe not the doubter. Maybe the pessimist who's saying, well, I don't know about this following Jesus, but hey, I'll give it a shot. We'll just roll with it and see what happens. Right? I might die today, but we're going to figure it out. It's clear from this account and from from others, you'll see after Jesus' death and resurrection, uh, and before his ascension, that Thomas didn't want to live without Jesus. As, as bad as Thomas felt this life was, he knew it was worse without Jesus in it. If Jesus was going to die, Thomas was prepared to die with him. In other words, that morning he said, guys, suck it up. Let's go and die. Because <laughs> right? it's better off than not being with him. All right, Better to die with Christ than to be left behind. So while Jesus deemed uh, and knew that he was this pessimist, he said, you know what, Thomas? You're in. You're in. James the Less. James. I don't, it's not to say James the Less here, but I'm going to explain why in a minute. James, the son of Alphaeus, right? We don't know a whole lot about James, so this is going to be quick, all right? There's nothing more except for some family details mentioned about him in Scripture. In Mark 15, you'll read him as referred as to, uh, to as James the Less. And the Greek word for less is, is mikros, which means little. So it probably meant the guy was pretty short, right? All right, so... Uh, so it would probably refer to his physical features. So maybe he was a short or, or small frame man, which kind of reaffirms that, you know, even though that old song, what, what decade of that song came out about short people, right? The short people song in the 60s or 70s is all wrong. You know, even Jesus said a short man can come and follow him, right? So even, even James the Less, even little James, quote unquote, you know, Jesus of his nicknames, little James was welcomed that morning. We don't know a lot about who he was. But the church is full of people just like James. I mean, not short people, but people who don't have a deed recorded ever in this life, but are still important enough in God's eyes to be chosen by him. That was little James that morning. He got chosen. Wrapping it up here. We're getting close to the end. Simon, who is called the zealot. Now, what in the world does that mean? Simon is called a zealot because he's got this political stance that is completely radical. All right? This guy, we talk about... Matthew, right? He's collecting for the Romans. Simon the Zealot was ready to kill anything and anybody in his path, right? The Zealots were a terrorist group, essentially, right? They were willing to assassinate. Matter of fact, they had this special blade they had crafted up. They had this special curve in it so it could just get under the rib. They, were, they had this thing all planned out, and they were ready to kill any Roman they could find, anything they could think that would, that would disrupt the Romans' occupation and get them out of Israel. They were ready to do it. They were all about it, all right? They were terrorists, and so here we go, Simon the, Simon the Zealot, red-hot patriot, ready to die in an instant for what they believed in, who has to show, associate with Matthew, who was working for the Romans. I bet that didn't go over very well for a little while. But there they were. Here was Matthew the tax collector, Simon the red-hot patriot, and had to walk side by side behind Jesus talking about politics. <laughs> oh, I bet that didn't go over well day to day. You can barely get, you know, a liberal and conservative in a room together today and not come out with some blood. I can imagine somebody has a special blade ready to kill somebody in this tax collector. It's probably bad times. It's probably bad times. But here they were following Jesus together. At one point in his life, Simon will probably have gladly killed Matthew. But here he is this morning, standing side by side, chosen by Jesus to be one of the twelve. He was good enough that morning to follow God. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, all right? That's normally how we find him. It's, it's Judas, you'll read in other accounts, Judas, not Iscariot, not the traitor, right? 
So we don't know a whole lot about Judas other than he's got a lot of names, Jude, Thaddeus, Labius. Uh, it was, Judas was probably his name given at birth. Labius and Thaddeus were essentially nicknames, uh, not good ones, <laughs> right? Um, not horrible, but they're just not good. Uh, Labius, or excuse me, Thaddeus means breast child, all right? So which probably makes you think of a nursing baby. So this is kind of what we get the context here, that he's probably the youngest in a large family. So in other words, he's the mama's boy. All right. He's the mama's boy. He's the one at the end of the line. They got everything he wanted. That was always coddled. And it was always, you know, the tenderhearted one that, that got away with everything. And then mama loved him so much and had all these things. He was the mama's boy. But that morning, even though he had this tender childlike heart, even though he was hanging out with the terrorist, even though he was hanging out with the tax collector, even though he was hanging out with these rugged fishermen who could go in and haul in these big nets who were ready to call down thunder and fire on towns, he was little mama's boy bringing up the rear, ready to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I don't know where we're going to go. We're going to do it. All right, he was ready to do it. And Jesus said, even though you may be considered tender, even though you may be considered weak by other standards, I want you follow me. You're one of the 12. Last one, Judas Iscariot, right? Everybody knows this guy. <clears throat> the most universally scorned of all the disciples in the whole Bible is Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor, we read here in, in uh, Luke, the betrayer. His name appears last in every list of every account of the apostles. He's always last. He was a solitary figure. He didn't come from Galilee, where most of these people came from. He came from a small town in Judea, way far away. Uh, there's, there was no evidence, though, even though he wasn't part of the crowd, even though he wasn't a fisherman, even though he wasn't a local, even though he wasn't uh, one, of the, one of the end guys there, there's no evidence that he was ever excluded or looked down upon by the rest of the group, although he himself probably thought of himself as an outsider, which probably helped him justify his own treachery. It also allowed him to play years as a hypocrite. They didn't know a lot about him, so they didn't know what, what his deal was. They just accepted him because Jesus accepted him. And so he could play like a whole other person, and they would never know. He could come in and out of that group day after day after day, pretending to be something that he wasn't, and nobody ever knew the difference. He worked his way into a place of trust. Ultimately, he became the treasurer of the group which he used to his advantage to skim some money off the top. He would take it constantly. Matter of fact, whenever there was a, an instance where he was um, sitting in a room with Jesus and uh, this lady broke up this, this expensive, a year's worth of money of perfume on Jesus' feet, um, Judas said, what in the world are you doing? We could have used all that money to do something better. Now, it sounds noble, but what he was really thinking was, oh, we could have used that money and I could have cut a little bit off the top for myself and put it off my personal account. He was always looking out for himself. He was probably young. He was probably zealous like Simon in a way. He was probably patriotic. He probably didn't want the Romans around just like most of the people at the time didn't want the Romans around. And he'd hoped that Christ would be the one to overthrow him. He followed Jesus out of a desire for selfish gain, for worldly ambition, for greed. He saw that Jesus had power unlike anything he had ever seen and he wanted it for himself or to be used for his cause. But Jesus wasn't doing that. He wasn't playing the political game. And when Judas recognized that, he was done with him. He was done with him. He betrayed Jesus. And after he betrayed Jesus, his guilt and his lack of repentance and his hardness would lead him to, to commit suicide just shortly after Jesus' crucifixion. Now, what I find ironic about this is that Jesus knew. He knew who Peter and Simon, Simon Peter was. He knew who Andrew was. He knew James. He knew John, Philip, Bartholomew. He knew all these people. He knew Judas Iscariot. He knew what he was going to do. And he chose him anyway. Judas would go on to betray Jesus. But what Judas did for evil, God used it for good. So here we are at the end. Team Jesus. Who do we have? The best and the brightest, right? Best and the brightest of the world. Here's, here's all the disciples anybody Jesus could have picked. Team Jesus gets 12 super guys are going to charge and change the world forever. They're going to be on fire for Jesus and just push through and conquer everything. Here we go. Team Jesus was filled with a loud mouth. Simon, right? They filled with a quiet guy who's always playing second fiddle. Two hot heads, right? Two of them, not just one hot head. One hot head's a lot. Two hot heads, that's kind of a lot to work with. Two hot heads in this group. A pragmatic bean counter, right? A guy that was prejudiced, 
couldn't stand the next town over. A money-grubbing tax collector, right? A worry wart, a short guy, a terrorist, a mama's boy, and a traitor. The best and the brightest, these were not. All right, these were not. It's like, the, everybody, anybody seen, this is an old movie, so you might not get this. Anybody seen Stripes? The old movie with, well, yeah, you've seen Stripes. Stripes, awesome movie. The best and the brightest, those guys were not, right? Right? It's kind of like that, kind of like Stripes. As a matter of fact, Jesus seems to deliberately chose the men who were only notable for the fact they were not notable at all, right? It's the exact opposite of what I would think I would choose and what most of us would choose. What qualified these men to be apostles? Why could they be sent? Why were they chosen out of the many as the twelve? Obviously, it wasn't any special ability they had. There was no outstanding talent. Nobody could just, uh, we don't, <laughs> he wasn't picking a band, so I don't think he was picking for music, musical talent, or he wasn't picking for, for brains, obviously, right? He wasn't picking them because they were quiet and submissive. They were good workers. They were servants. No. He was picking rough and tumble nobodies. They weren't ruling elites. They were deemed low class. They were rural. They were uneducated. All those things. Whenever people see churches today, that's not who they think are in them. Most of the time. Most of the time, the people who are rural, uneducated, at least formally, and deemed low class by the world, see the church as this uppity-up group, right? As this people who think they're better than everybody else who can come in and do this. But Jesus chose 12 men that day who were the lowest of the low, who were nobodies, and said, you're good enough. You're good enough. That was exactly why they were chosen. Jesus purposely passed over the elite. He passed over the aristocrats. He passed over the influential men of society and chose mostly the men from the bottom. But that's how it is. We're going to see that next week. That's how it's always been in God's kingdom. He exalts the humble and lays low those who are proud. The answer to his who is good enough to follow Jesus is no one. I want, you, I want to let that sink in. Who's good enough? Nobody. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, says Romans 3.10. Paul himself, who would go on to be one of the greatest apostles of all time, who would plant churches over and over and over again, said, I know what's inside of me. The things that I want to do, I can't. The things I do, I don't. He's, he was, knew he was conflicted that every day he was the worst, the chiefest of all sinners. He knew he was the worst of the worst. That didn't stop him, though, from being chosen by Jesus. Because it's not who you are, it's who Jesus has called you to be and who he makes you when he accepts you and says, you're chosen. You're good enough. Not on your own, but because I chose you. I deem you good enough. I deem you a world changer. I deem you someone who is worthy to be a son and daughter of the King of Kings. Jesus would transform the unqualified into the qualified. The 12 were just like all of us. Nobodies. At least in the grand scheme of things, right? John 15, 16 says, you didn't choose me. This is Jesus speaking. I chose you. Jesus' choice testifies to the fact that God can and will use what the world considers unworthy and unqualified. He uses nobodies and makes them somebody. All he required of them, all he required of them, he didn't say, Right now, before you come over here on this side of this mountain this morning, boys, you have to renounce everything you ever did. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta stop being a terrorist. You gotta stop being a money grubbing tax collector. You gotta do all those things. That would come. You gotta stop being Simon. You gotta be the rock right now, or just drop it all and just be that person I've called you to be, or you can't be in here anymore. He didn't say any of those things. He said, "Are you ready? Are you available? Will you follow?" 
He would draw them to himself. He would train them. He would gift them. He would empower them to be world changers. And all he needed that morning were hearts that were open to the truth and hungry to know it. That's it. To realize that they didn't have it figured out and that they needed to figure it out. And that the one who had it was standing right there in front of them that morning as they walked over from the masses to the few to follow him. In the sense, in that sense, they were available. They were very different from the religious establishment of the world, which was dominated by hypocrisy and false piety. The disciples were the real thing. And he's looking for the real thing this morning as well. You didn't choose me. I chose you. For non-believers this morning, if you've ever wondered if you're good enough to be here, I pray that you leave here knowing you do belong and you belong. Jesus didn't come for people like me, <laughs> right? He didn't come for the pastors and the people who thought they had it together. He didn't come from the people who said, oh, just be like me. Just, just follow all these sets of rules. He came for the people who everybody else considered nobodies, people who were ready to lay it all down and say, you know what? I, I don't have it figured out, but I want to. I don't understand everything yet, but I want to. I know that I've messed up and made mistakes, but I'm ready to learn from them and try to do better, and I want to hear it from you, Jesus. That's it. That's who he wants. All he's looking for you to say, non-believer this morning, is here I am, use me. For believers this morning, I'll give you a chance to respond to that in just a minute for those who don't believe yet, but for believers this morning, are we staying humble? Are we staying humble? It's all too easy for us to start thinking that we're good enough when often we're further away from Jesus than anybody else we know. There are people who don't come on a Sunday morning who might be closer to Jesus than you are. That coming here every, morning, every Sunday morning isn't enough on its own. It's a heart thing. It's a humility thing. It's not about looking the part. It's about putting him in, through, and above all things. So are we willing to lay aside our pride and make important those that the world considers unimportant?